Virtualization software allows companies to get better utilization from their physical servers. A single physical host can manage multiple virtual machines using a hypervisor. VMware brought virtualization software to market, creating popular tools for allowing enterprises to deploy virtual machines throughout their organization. Containers provide another improvement to server utilization. A virtual machine can be broken up into containers, allowing multiple services to run within a single VM. Containers proliferated after the popularization of Docker, and the Kubernetes open-source container orchestration system grew to be the most common way for managing the large numbers of containers that were running throughout an organization. As Kubernetes has risen to prominence, software infrastructure companies have developed Kubernetes services to allow enterprises to use Kubernetes more easily. PKS is one example of a managed Kubernetes service. PKS comes out of a joint project between VMware and Pivotal Software. Brad Mycellus is a senior director of engineering at VMware with more than nine years of experience with the company. He joins the show to discuss virtualization, Kubernetes, containers, and the strategy of a large infrastructure provider like VMware. Brad Mycellus, you are a vice president at VMware. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hello, Jeff. Good to be here. You were director of R&D at VMware from 2008 to 2013, and you are currently working on VMware, the container platform, as well as some other products that we'll get into. I want to go back to 2008 to 2013, because I think there are infrastructure lessons we could discuss from that time that apply to today. Back in 2008-2013 timeframe, how was infrastructure software changing? Yeah, well, you know, that was not quite early days for VMware, but early enough. We'd already been, you know, discovered. You know, I joined in 2008 when we had already uh, had our IPO and, and were in growth mode. And, you know, a lot of what, what started the company in, on its uh, success path was, you know, essentially the magic associated with the idea of, of essentially virtualizing computers and having them run as virtual machines within other computers and then doing like these magic things like vMotion. And so that's, I think, what got everybody's attention and imagination going. But, you know, the thing that we discovered uh, relatively early on in the company's history was that, you know, magic gets attention, but it's solving real business problems that, you know, gets uh, people to use and love your products. And, and, you know, we have been on a journey to do as much as we can to make it easy to operate data centers. And that's where a lot of our energy has gone in terms of monitoring, troubleshooting, solving compliance problems, and automation. Describe the competitive advantage that VMware developed in the early 2000s. Well, I think it was largely our realization that where the very first value proposition for virtualization was this notion of server consolidation and where companies could save money by having fewer physical servers and thus uh, have the decreased costs associated with the hardware itself, uh, associated with uh, electricity and cooling and, and those sorts of uh, you know, operational expenses. But the real realization is that the total cost of ownership has a very, very large, you know, often overshadowing by a wide margin, those other costs is the human cost. 
So what you can do to automate processes, reduce the number of, uh, of touch points needed to satisfy the business needs uh, sat- that those computers are there for is the thing that really gave us the advantage. Virtualization software allowed companies to get better economies of scale out of their infrastructure. And that is what you're referring to with what, what VMware allowed for. More recently, companies have gotten even more economies of scale from containerization. Is the use case for enterprise customers who want a container today, is that the same as an enterprise that wanted a VM back in early 2000s? There are certainly a lot of similarities. So with any platform that's going to run applications, whether they're containerized running on uh, Kubernetes or another container runtime, or you're running virtual machine images on our core virtualization platform, you're going to have a lot of the same benefits around automation that I was talking about earlier. What I'd say is different as uh, companies move into the containerization world is that they're extending the need for automation and the benefits of automation from operating their data centers and their applications in production to earlier and earlier in the software development lifecycle. And what I mean by that is, you know, a developer writes some code, tests it locally, and the process from going from a tested working piece of software on a developer's development environment to that software running in production in traditional virtual machine worlds often involve a lot of steps and a lot of people. And I think the what we're seeing is that automation of those software development lifecycle processes is where is the next frontier of uh, productivity and cost savings. Are there any other lessons from the enterprise adoption of virtualization that can be applied to the adoption of containers and Kubernetes? So there's a few things that I think have been really instrumental in the success that VMware uh, has realized in the virtualization of, of uh, computers world. And you know some of them uh, relate to ecosystem development. So we haven't tried to solve every problem ourselves. In fact, we have, uh, we have very, been very, very um, you know, committed to uh, involving develop, you know, all sorts of partners from the hardware level to uh, system integrators, to other software platforms. And I think uh, you know, that commitment to building a community of partners, as well as the neutrality that, that put us in, were really successful in our, uh, in our early efforts in the virtualization world. And I think a lot of those thing, same things will translate into the container world with an added twist that in the container world in particular, that ecosystem is not just with partners that we nurture and select, but also but with the open source community as a whole, and so much of the software that is really making a difference in the, in the container world is open. Ecosystem can refer to open source projects, can refer to platforms like OpenShift or Mesosphere. It can refer to cloud providers like AWS or Google. It can refer to standalone vendors like Datadog or or Dynatrace. There's so many different individual companies and projects that can be referred to as parts of the ecosystem. Maintaining well or fostering something like neutrality that can be hard to do because. 
you have these different types of players in the ecosystem that have different amounts of resources and represent different competitive threats. Maybe not competitive threats, but competitive uh, players. So what is your modern approach to ecosystem management? Yeah, I mean, you, you make some really good points there. And, you know, if you think about some of the, you know, major partnerships that, you know, we've been in the news for recently, you can see that we don't, you know, just because a company may have uh, some other product or offering in a space that overlaps with ours, that doesn't make us shy away from seeking them as a partner and trying to look for ways to collaborate. And there's probably no, no better examples than, than Amazon and IBM. And both of those partners have been absolutely instrumental in helping our growth and uh, continue to be, uh, even though uh, we certainly do uh, compete in some areas. And I think that's been our, our strategy from the start, and I don't see any change in that. Yeah, and I think it makes a lot of sense because the market is so gigantic. The number of enterprises who are opening up their wallets to buy new container orchestration software or monitoring tools or whatever, they're just a lot of dollars, and they are going to be turned off by an overall atmosphere of companies not cooperating with each other. So it's this pretty positive sum development. I don't know if, if you would agree with that, or, or maybe you can draw some contrast between less collaborative environments of the past. I, I actually can't think of, of a scenario where that might be the case. Do you well? So, like in the past, though, do you feel like things have been like just a more competitive software environment? Like today, like I did a show earlier this week with somebody from Microsoft who was work. He's, he does open source in Microsoft. Previously, he worked at Google, and the way he framed it is that you know the fact that you have these open source projects that are kind of like a neutral ground for companies to all collaborate. I think that combined with lots of enterprise dollars that want to move into a cloud native environment has led to to kind of a more positive sum environment. But, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's always been kind of collaborative and positive sum. You're probably right that the open source movement and the adoption of open source by companies that have uh, traditionally been closed source and you know, Microsoft is, is uh, you know, a great example and and I think VMware is another great example where, you know, our early success all came from uh, proprietary software. And now we collaborate with uh, all of those companies, including Microsoft, on, you know, Kubernetes itself and other projects. And I think that that does open up more willingness throughout our entire organizations to collaborate in general and find opportunities to work together. And in fact, uh, you know, we had a, a release of, uh, of PKS, VMware's, uh, you know, Kubernetes uh, offering just uh, earlier this week. And in that one, we announced support for uh, Microsoft's Azure platform. And uh, we're hoping that that uh, translates into a lot of, uh, of uh, you know, shared customers between us. There have been infrastructure management tools prior to Kubernetes, like OpenStack is an example that people talk about a lot. How did the early days of OpenStack compare to those of Kubernetes? Yeah, I think there are a lot of similarities in the in the early days. They're both platforms that are trying to solve, you know, a very uh, broad and you know wide uh, group of different business problems. Uh, there's a lot of different vendors involved in both of those who both who who are looking not only to contribute to the open source project but also you know with commercial offerings uh, to try to monetize that that open source. So I think there were uh, you know significant similarities in the early days of both projects. 
and you know comparatively it still is early days for kubernetes and i guess you know one you know one big question is will they follow similar trajectories right yeah do you think that that risk of you know kind of following some some trajectory that leads kubernetes towards a you know a less productive path do you think that's that risk has been removed yet or or is kubernetes still uh, at risk of of having some kind of you know issue and losing adoption or fracturing I was not directly involved in you know a project associated with open sh- or sorry open stack and so you know I don't have sort of firsthand knowledge to point to what were the inflection points along the trajectory of OpenStack that that led it to you know sort of not realize this potential because there was a point in time there where uh, you know you could have uh, believed that that was going to be you know the de facto uh, way to manage data centers and it hasn't happened so what so what went wrong you know rather than comment on that maybe I can tell you what I think is going well in the Kubernetes open source community please yeah and you know, hope that that continues. Uh, you know, our participation and observation in the Kubernetes community with you know major players, right? And you know who who all the major players are. You know, some of whom are are very friendly towards towards each other, and some not necessarily. But when you go to the meetings of the of the leaders of the Kubernetes community, when you go to you know smaller group meetings and in, in SIGs and conferences like KubeCon, what you see is a genuine you know, commitment to try to build the best platform. And I don't see any, you know, sort of uh, private agendas being pushed in ways that that are contrary to the way a healthy community should be run. And, you know, that's certainly our approach towards our participation in the community. And I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of signs that that will continue just, just based on you know, the leadership. When did VMware start to evaluate Kubernetes as something to build a product around, and how did that evaluation process proceed? Well, you know, we've had an eye on on uh, the development of containers as a way of deploying applications. You know, when I'd say you know Docker first repopularized the concept, and somewhere you know maybe in uh, 2013, 2014. We started investigating how how we should be participating in that ecosystem, and you know, back in 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 that time frame, and then maybe leading all the way up to 2015, it was very you know sort of neck and neck between whether uh, Docker with Swarm, Mesos, or, or Kubernetes might emerge as uh, as the leader. So that was about when we started having Kubernetes on our radar and, and recognizing its potential. Different. Companies that have built a Kubernetes offering have built the product in in different ways, and the like. The Kubernetes offering for one cloud provider is different than another. They are very similar, and you have this Kubernetes conformant for having a similar Kubernetes type of set of APIs or whatever, so you can port your Kubernetes stuff from one cloud to another, for example. But in any case, for VMware you have a different customer base than the major cloud providers. How did the average customer base of VMware, how did that affect your approach to architecting the PKS, your Kubernetes service? So first of all, you, the conformance test that you're referring to is uh, is the Sonobui test, right? That all of us who have uh, conformant Kubernetes offerings, we run those tests. And in our case, we run them daily to make sure that we don't ever come out of compliance. But with each new release, we do that. And you're right, there's lots and lots of, of vendors out there. What those tests do is they 
within a given cluster, they verify that the major operations that are expected actually run. So that does create this level of portability uh, which which uh, you know is quite reliable, right? If you if your application runs on one instance of Kubernetes, you know, assuming that you're sticking with relatively similar version and and underlying capabilities in the hardware, you know, if you're relying on something in particular, I guess in that case, then you should be able to run from one to the other. So when it comes to making an offering like like PKS, we look to what are the operational needs of our customers. So if you, you know, think back on you know, some of the earlier comments that I made about you know, enterprise customers trying to drive value from a platform, uh, you know, it was important for us to apply some of those learnings. So how, would, how can we make this easy to operate? How could we make it easy to automate? How can we make it easy to monitor? And so those are the areas that we've been investing you know, our engineering effort into. And another thing that has become you know, really uh, apparent is that many enterprises running uh, Kubernetes view their clusters as ephemeral? You know, it's uh, you know we talk about uh, about uh, you know cattle, you know the the whole um, you know pets versus cattle analogy when it comes to your applications themselves and your and your containers. But a lot of customers are viewing that same paradigm in their clusters themselves, where the clusters can come and go. So one of the things that was really important for us to do in the product is to make it very easy to lifecycle manage. A you know a uh, large number of clusters, and that's uh, and a lot of energy has gone into making that super simple. The cattle, not pets, development or the way that people are using Kubernetes. That was something that I, I didn't actually understand until more recently. Where just like people treat Docker containers as these dispensable entities that should be stateless and you can have them rotate out or go down or A-B test them anytime. People are looking at their clusters the same way as these dispensable things that can be torn down. Did that surprise you that people started using clusters as cattle, not pets? Well, it's something that we learned very early on in you know talking to the early adopters of, of our product. And it was actually part of our design from the beginning. So we, you know, we were uh, happy that we that we had recognized that need early. And and by the way, it's not like every cluster is cattle. You know, if you if you if it's a production cluster that has uh, you know stateful sets, you might not think of it that way. But where analogy applies is that uh, you know if your Kubernetes offer you know whatever your Kubernetes platform makes it easy. Why not uh, spin up clusters for each developer to work in a sandbox? Why not spin up clusters for each each time that you're running your test suite? Why not spin up uh, clusters every time there's a new version of Kubernetes and make sure there's no incompatibilities with your apps? So, you know, for all those reasons, we see it uh, as being you know a widely used pattern and with with a lot of benefits as long as it doesn't uh, require a whole lot of operational effort to get them to come and go. For customers who are already on VMware virtualization, did you want to provide some kind of on-ramp for them to easily go from virtualization to containerization? There is a, a you know a term that's been thrown around quite a bit around the container space, which is you know this notion of uh, of lift and shift, or some people say shift and lift. But you know that's the notion of saying I've got an application already running in VMs, and I want to you know start running it in containers, and 
attempt to realize some of the benefits of containers without having to re-architect an app. And I think that's what you're referring to. I'm also actually, I should have been more clear, but I'm also referring to the fact that you can take your VMs and break them up into containers and get more economies of scale that way. But I guess I'm just trying to understand the customer a little bit better in terms of what they want out of a Kubernetes solution. Yeah, so so I'd say there there is a little bit of this lift and shift activity where there's an existing an existing app with or without refactoring, where the idea of of portability and maybe the integration with uh, CI/CD pipelines will actually provide a benefit without a major rearchitecture. Um, there's definitely a use case for that, and in fact, some commercial software offerings are now being uh, made available not just as uh, virtual machine images, but also as container images. So, uh, you know, there's that uh, way in which Kubernetes can be uh, leveraged. But I think the vast majority of uh, at least, you know, some of the early adopters of Kubernetes are actually building new applications and uh, and trying to architect them uh, following, the, you know, the cloud native uh, principles that they've been reading about and, and, you know, trying to get, you know, the full benefit. Right. This is one of these trends that's kind of interesting that it's not just the adoption of public cloud or hybrid cloud that is increasing. There's also just the expansion of uh, of on-prem deployments, the expansion of deployments everywhere, because people aren't shutting down their old applications. They're deploying more applications alongside their existing applications. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, with any application... You know, and you know, I'm an engineering manager, so I have to think about this a lot in, in, in my own job and not just what our customers are doing. Uh, you know, rearchitecture is expensive, and you better be sure that you're going to get the benefit from it if you're going to embark on, a, on that kind of a project versus just adding new features and, and, and value that you know is in your backlog. So, I think our customers are going through that same equation. And, uh, and some systems really should be re-architected because the velocity that their engineering teams are able to, to deliver is, is unacceptably slow. That's when it's justified. So I think that that's the same you know, decision process that, uh, that we all go through. And, and, and if you're going to re-architect, you may as well leapfrog into the cloud native world and, and try to reap uh, you know, the benefits of uh, you know, scalability and, and more automation. I will say I would much rather be on a project that is kind of a green field, uh, just deploying a new application alongside uh, an existing application. But that said, I completely agree. There are times where you just have to refactor. My sense of talking to people is that there is, I guess, a, a growing tolerance of, okay, we've got this piece of software and maybe it's not uh, built perfectly, but we, we need to move on to, uh, to building some new features. And so we're just going to leave this this uh, old piece of software as it is and just kind of let it continue to run and build some new stuff. Uh, but is that leading to an IT sprawl where you just have these old applications and then just continued expansion and sprawl of new applications to the point where nobody really knows like where everything is running and, and this just becomes a sprawling problem? I think you've you've hit on a a need in the market for management, right? <laughs> so, dare say that every organization, unless you know, at least that you know any uh, reasonably sized organization, would already view their application for portfolio as having sprawl today. And so, there is no it's a it's a problem that's already endemic. 
And so I don't think that that necessarily factors into the decision of what to do with any particular app. How are the buying patterns of enterprises changing in this cloud native world? So when it comes to making a platform decision, that's something that's going to be impactful because you're not just you know choosing something that's going to impact you know usually a small number of people. It could in- impact the entire enterprise. And all else being equal, you'd rather have a single platform, right? Platforms are are they often come with a learning curve. You know that they are often difficult to operationalize. So it's a big decision, and the way companies are evaluating their their choices in container platforms, I think, uh, isn't that much different from the way any other uh, platform decision uh, has been done historically. Find a few choices that uh, that you think. Uh, satisfy, you know, your core needs from a functional standpoint, and make sure you're working with a vendor that uh, that you know you trust and that and that has a track record of being reliable, and you know has a, a track record of of innovating, so that you don't get uh, stuck behind. If I'm a large enterprise like a bank or an insurance company, am I looking for just one platform provider to help me? deploy Kubernetes or have a have a modern platform? Or am I saying, let's just have carte blanche and one part of the bank is going to have uh, one platform as a service, another part of the bank has a different platform as a service? Are most of the organizations you're talking to, are they only looking for one of these platforms? Let me just, uh, you know, go back to something that we touched on earlier. Which is you know one of the one of the benefits of you know Kubernetes as a platform is that workloads are portable from one Kubernetes cluster to another, and almost always from one version of Kubernetes to another, unless something significant has changed. There's a huge gap. So whether you got your your cluster through just installing the open source project yourself or through a vendor or through a, a cloud provider, ideally the Kubernetes control plane itself will run your app. So I think that has led to there being less of a imperative that we must have only one. And large organizations such as you know the ones you mentioned, banks and insurance companies, et cetera, they may prefer to have one, but it's often impossible, right? You know, different groups have a lot of autonomy and they uh, you know, have some business imperative for which they must act fast and, and coordinating uh, a purchase or a, or a decision across an entire enterprise uh, can be very difficult. Um, so I think that the reality is that uh, many companies find themselves with more than one, even though they didn't specifically seek more than one, because they do view the uh, the ability to run their apps as relatively uniform. That said, I do think that over time we'll see that the operational cost of having more than one will uh, will eventually become a large enough problem that that companies do want to solve it and and, uh, and maybe consolidate on the one that's given them the um, the best results. What about the cloud provider? conversation like you see lots of enterprises that are starting to play with cloud providers they're increasingly opening up their wallets to public cloud providers like AWS and they want to be able to work with some of the cloud provider services but they also want privately hosted on-premise kubernetes they want to be able to take advantage of the data centers that they've already invested in. How are you seeing companies that want some exposure to the cloud 
managing their Kubernetes platform selection? Yeah, so what you're you're touching on what uh, has already happened in the virtualization in the in the VM world, which is that uh, you know hybrid is basically the way that companies are are going to run for the foreseeable future, right? There was a point in time where you know cloud was just emerging, and then there was this period of time where you know the the narrative was you know the data center is dead and and cloud will rule. And what VMware has has uh, you know predicted and and uh, and what our strategy has moved towards is that is that hybrid is actually the right choice because there are economies of scale uh, that can be achieved on prem and there and there are data and, and there are data protection benefits uh, from uh, having an on prem data center. But for many reasons, it's good to have cloud presence as well. So this whole hybrid approach, I think, is here to stay. And that's true for virtual machines. And I think it's going to be true for container platforms as well. And, and even in public cloud, there's quite a lot of, of choice, right? The, the major cloud providers all have their own Kubernetes services. You know, VMware has, uh, has cloud PKS. So we have PKS for on-prem and we also have uh, cloud PKS. And you know, I think there are other vendors that uh, can deliver uh, Kubernetes clusters on uh, public clouds as well. So I, I do think that we're going to see a hybrid footprint for Kubernetes uh, for a lot of the same reasons that we see it for virtual machines. The VMware Cloud PKS, is, is that a version of your Kubernetes service that gets deployed to cloud, like clouds like Amazon or, or Azure? Yeah, that's exactly right. So we offer a SaaS service uh, where, uh, you know, through a user interface and an API, you can spin up clusters in public clouds. Okay. So a company, if I'm an enterprise, like a bank, maybe I want to spin up a cluster on AWS so that my cluster is closer to some AWS managed service? Like, if I'm a developer at at an enterprise like a bank, why am I choosing to, if I've got Kubernetes, if I've got PKS deployed on the cloud and also on-prem, how am I choosing where to spin up a cluster? Why does that matter to me? Well, you know, we talked earlier about all the different reasons why companies will have multiple clusters. So there are many different uh, lines in which uh, that decision can be made. One very simple one is, well, our production applications run on-prem, and that's where we have absolute control over access to, to the data, et cetera. And that's, and that's our comfort zone. But for development and testing purposes, we like the ephemeral nature of the resources the pay for what we use uh, nature of resources. And that is a perfectly fine workload to run in cloud. That's one possible line. Another is, you know, burst capacity where, you know, you operate your on-prem clusters at, you know, some sustainable utilization, but you don't want to go, let's say above 70% utilization on uh, CPU for your hardware or some measure like that. And uh, during peak period, you actually want to stretch your services and have uh, and have some of them uh, run in burst capacity in cloud. So those are two examples, and I think there are others. But uh, but I, you know there there will be lots of reasons for which people will select one or the other or both. When you're thinking about architecting PKS, do you try to keep your service just 
kind of at parity with with Kubernetes services that are on other platforms, or are there ways in which you can differentiate or want to differentiate? I can almost imagine not even wanting to differentiate because you just want to kind of keep pace with the market and make sure you're compliant and make sure you have optionality. But then again, maybe you do want to differentiate in certain ways. Do, do you want to differentiate as a Kubernetes platform provider? The area in which we focus a lot of our energy is on the operations of the Kubernetes clusters themselves. Like, let's make it easy to operate. And so DevOps teams can, can have, you know, essentially a completely reliable, you know, service on which to, to build their apps. And there's a lot that, that we do in that area to really reduce all of the the effort required from an operations front, and you know, we touched on a few of these things. There's certainly you know monitoring uh, what's the health of my of my clusters. There's uh, watching utilization and scaling as necessary. The cluster itself, I mean. Then there is um, the management of network access and isolation that you know we automate uh, when a cluster is created. We we uh, you know we automate all the steps necessary to make sure that you have ingress you know, north-south network connectivity as well as uh, east-west network connectivity within the cluster. So you know, there's, there's a large surface area of need there uh, that we're working to address. Now, you were alluding to you know, services that I, and, and, and I'm gonna, I think you're, you're alluding to services that applications want to leverage. So, you know, maybe a database service, a storage service, a, a message bus service, that sort of thing. And, you know, we are developing a, a marketplace, a partner network in which, you know, the vendors who are specialists in those areas could make uh, their offerings available on our on our platform. And in public cloud, uh, you know, there's a latching on to the service broker mechanism to enable, you know, clusters deployed on our platform or applications running on those clusters to leverage uh, services offered by the cloud provider in which they're running. That's the open service broker project? Yeah, that's right. Can you explain more what that project is doing? So when an application wants to make use of a service, the key things that that application needs is, you know, how do I reach that service and how do I authenticate uh, with that service? And those are the two key areas of functionality that the open service broker API uh, attempts to solve. And does that refer to like managed services, like things that you're buying from a cloud provider, or is it referring to like a service that I've built myself? So it could be either. And I think in, in most cases, it's both. But typically, we're talking about services that are running outside of the cluster, right? Because within... Okay. Yeah. So if, if it's a service that you've built yourself that's running inside the cluster, you don't need to use that broker. Kubernetes itself has the mechanism with which to you know, discover and leverage microservices running within the cluster that you're running on. And so the service broker, does that define protocols? Or can you talk in more detail what exactly it's, it's defining for me? Uh, well, it gives you a way to discover which services are available. It's certainly API driven, so it is it is an API, and you know you can say you know which services are available. Okay, here's the one that I want to leverage. What's the endpoint that I can reach it at? And you know here are the credentials that I'm allowed to use to access it. So those are the, those are the, the general functionality that that it provides. Another aspect of networking on Kubernetes is the service mesh. This is the idea that you have sidecar containers deployed 
next to some of your services, and then you have a control plane that allows you to define network policy, uh, define routing, define authentication and security stuff essentially. What was your approach to to the service mesh category and how does that affect the architecture of, of PKS? Yeah, so there are a few service mesh offerings out there and they think that uh, you know, it is a an area that's likely to continue to gain traction. You know, at this point, I'd say there is a there's a lot more mindshare associated with service mesh than there is actual utilization. Well, there's a lot of great success stories with it. Our approach is to first of all make sure that uh, the widely used uh, service mesh options, and you know, Istio is, seems to be emerging as as the leader there, run smoothly on all of our Kubernetes offerings. And the beauty is, as we talked about earlier, Kubernetes does present a conformant, you know, control plane, and the service meshes themselves are are able to run. Uh, without any, you know, huge uh, heavy lifting on the part of the of the you know people operating the cluster, so that's great. We've also introduced a, a product called uh, NSX Service Mesh, and you know one of the really neat things that Service Mesh enables is this not just you know discovery of services, but also traceability. And we see you know one of the use cases that we talked about earlier was this idea of maybe burst capacity where you're stretching, you know, a service from on-prem to cloud, or maybe it's two different on-prem, it doesn't really matter, clusters. How do you then make sure that your that your service has a common identity across those clusters and that you could, you know, trace its usage across those clusters? And those are the sorts of problems that we're looking to solve uh, with NSX uh, service mesh. You and I met at KubeCon in China what was your experience talking to Kubernetes users in China? You know, first of all, that was a phenomenal event. And, you know, I've been going to China regularly because uh, we have, you know, very uh, a very active uh, engineering group there. And, you know, I've seen the the adoption of Kubernetes in China at least as strong as it's been in the U.S. And, you know, it's great to see that community now uh, starting to participate more in the open source projects, Kubernetes itself and, and related ones. Did you have any interesting conversations that stood out to you in, in KubeCon China? Or I don't know if you went to the most recent KubeCon. I find those conferences pretty interesting because there's a lot of uh, you know stuff that gets said in between talks and outside of keynotes and whatnot. Just wondering if there, you said anything I can mine from your falling through the cracks gathering of information. Yeah. One of the things that really that really surprised me is how many public cloud offerings there are in China. By the way, I didn't go, I didn't go to KubeCon in in Seattle this time. I, I you know I I had I got KubeConned out in Shanghai, but I was just amazed that you know as I met people uh, you know what do you do? Oh, I I work for this startup that's a cloud provider, and we have a Kubernetes offer. So you know I think that that's just such a such a growth area in that country. It's it's really quite amazing. There are enterprises today that are completely overwhelmed with all the options in the cloud-native world. Do you have any advice for these kinds of enterprises on how to approach the market? Well, so I guess one thing to to think about, you know, this is there's so much mind share and attention being paid in the media to Kubernetes that I think most CIOs and other decision makers 
are saying, gee, I better get me a Kubernetes. Otherwise, I'm you know, not uh, keeping up with the times. And I'd say, you know, don't get Kubernetes just because you think it's the, it's, you know, the trend that you, need to, that you need to follow. You know, find a real business problem where you know, taking an existing application and refactoring it or building a new application in a cloud-native way actually has a real business benefit and have that business objective be the driver for uh, for adopting you know kubernetes or or probably any new technology for that matter vmware acquired heptio a while ago have you gotten any insights about your kubernetes strategy from the heptio acquisition well you know first of all so much of what we had been doing pre-acquisition is so well aligned with uh, the vision that you know Heptio has, and and you know as as you probably know that the two founders of Heptio, you know Craig McLucky and and Joe Beta, are two of the three founders of Kubernetes itself back when they worked at Google. So these guys have you know a great vision for where you know they see their baby going, and also you know they're amazed at where it's gone already. But the real delight in our in our um, you know discussions with them leading up to the acquisition is just how. Uh, well aligned our visions were in terms of what the potential is for this technology and and how we can uh, help our our customers continue to to innovate and really get the best out of it. What's on the roadmap for PKS in the near future? We talked about the areas in which you know we want to differentiate, and I think we have a long way to go before we realize you know the full potential of just uh, making things simple and and have clusters that are completely you know, essentially autonomic, easy to operate. Uh, so we're going to continue working on that. You know, I also, you know, think we touched on on this notion of hybrid as well and how it's not right to have just one big cluster. There's lots of reasons why you, multiple clusters are desirable and, and multiple clusters in different places. So I also see a, you know, a, a big opportunity for coming up with technologies that enable our customers to make best use of that hybrid footprint and you know we talked about our service mesh approach as as one example of that and i think there's there's plenty more that we could do in that um, in that realm pivotal and vmware worked together on pks and pivotal and vmware have some shared lineage and some shared I guess ownership i think dell owns both vmware and pivotal these days what was the process for collaborating with Pivotal on taking PKS to market? Yes, this has been a, a true partnership with Pivotal across the entire product development process. I mean, we, we, we started by getting some of our experienced engineers who had a lot of context. You know, Pivotal has a lot of history, maybe one of the, maybe one of the organizations with, with the most history on, on what it means to uh, build cloud-native apps and, and containerized workloads with the Cloud Foundry offering. So we brought some of their uh, leaders together with ours, and we shaped the product together. We co-developed it. Uh, you know, our our engineers actually uh, work in the same facility, and we market it together, and and uh, we actually sell it together too. So it's uh so every facet of this project has been a collaboration. Okay, well, Brad, it's been really great talking to you about VMware and PKS, and I'm looking forward to seeing what else develops out of VMware in the future. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Wow. 